right, on today's episode of I-501-CU, the podcast for nonprofit board members, we are interviewing Brian Deming, board chair for United Way Suncoast. Brian is a seasoned technology entrepreneur. He's an executive, an investor, a board member, more than 30 years of consulting and business leadership experience, a co-founder of the former and former president of TriBridge, for those of you in the Tampa area, which was a software and technology consulting company. He has got a number of pearls of wisdom in this interview. If you want to be a board member, if you're currently a board member and want to be a board chair, this is the interview for you. So now, with no further ado, join me in the interview with Brian Deming. Hey everybody, Reed Corley here to let you know we will be releasing a new podcast every week. If you want to be the best board member you can be, visit our website, thecorleycompany.com to sign up for our email list to be the first to know when a podcast drops. Well, so excited to have Brian Deming, board chair for United Way Suncoast on this podcast, also founder of Crucis LLC. So Brian's got, a, as you just heard in the intro, a tremendous background. And Brian, how are you doing on this wonderful Friday? I'm doing great, Michael. I hope you are as well. I really appreciate the chance to be here and talk with you. Looking forward to our time together, so thank you. Well, thank you. And just for the listeners know, today we're recording on October 7th, 2022, so we're still dealing with the aftermath of Hurricane Ian. Uh, and just uh, Brian and I had a chance to talk about it. He's got family down in Venice and just so sorry about what's happening all over the southwest Florida. So our thoughts and prayers continue to be with the folks the folks down there. Um, so, Brian, you know, we'll, we'll just jump right in. And uh, your, your background, I, I noticed something in it. So entrepreneur, you founded TriBridge, you're working, Lord knows how many hours a week during that period of time. Yet, yet you still find time to be on a board, a nonprofit board of directors. Why, why did you do that? Why would you have dedicated time to that? Yeah, you know, there's probably a, a lot of background to that question that, that I won't go too deep into. But it at some level, it's something that's been instilled in me since since I was a kid, right? Even before I knew it was being instilled, my parents kind of um, just demonstrated by by their behaviors the need to give back and help others. And so I think it's always been something that's ingrained in me. But overtly, as we started our company, you know, I had had, had grown up in the consulting business, but worked for larger companies that had, you know, encouraged us to give back and be involved. And so when we started TriBridge, my viewpoint was, you know, we're only going to be as successful as the communities in which we operate. And so we've got to give back to those communities and make them better in order to help our business. So, you know, it's partly altruistic and partly also obviously helps helps the business that you're growing. But I think that influenced how we looked at the business from the get go. And we can talk more as, as we go, if you'd like, about what we did to encourage our, our team members to give back and get more involved as well. So to me, it was something that is not a it's not really an option. It's something that you need to do. There, there's a bit of, of a kind of moral imperative in my mind that says, get involved and give back and help other people. And no matter how hard we're working to build our business, there's a great need out there that, that you know, I feel like we can both work on ourselves and influence our, our team to do as well. Well, I think that is a great lesson, particularly for the young listeners out there that are you in the beginning in their careers or maybe even the midst of them that are so busy and say, I do not have time. There is value in making the time to benefit your community. So I appreciate you saying that, Brian. So as, as you were doing that, you had an opportunity to probably be involved in, I don't know, three, four thousand nonprofits. You chose a couple. What makes you decide which nonprofit to be involved with? You know, I think early in, in your career, it, sometimes it's, it's almost happenstance that leads you into to finding something. But I would say looking back on it now and what advice I give folks is 
find something that resonates with you that you're passionate about because you, you can't you, you shouldn't be doing this just because it's the right thing to do you should be doing it because you really have a heart for for whatever that nonprofit is and so as i've looked at these opportunities i've said what gets into my heart that says i want to do this rather than i need to do it because it's the right thing to do. I, I really want to be motivated for for the right reasons and so um my intro to united way was almost accidental right i worked for a large company that uh, that ran united way campaigns and i was traveling a lot and needed to get back in town for a while for some personal reasons and my company was able to get me back in town by putting me as a loan executive at united way and i really didn't know what united way was all about at that point i donated because it's what you were supposed to do but that changed really changed the course of my life from a nonprofit perspective spending three months working full-time at united way while my company still paid for my salary i really got under the covers of of what the organization did and it went from oh, I should write a check to the, to the organization to, no, I need to give as much as I can, both of my time and my and my money. And so it got into my, that one in particular, got into my heart, you know, 30 plus years ago at this point. Um, and and I've, I've stayed connected to it ever since. And so when I look back though, I, I think that kind of accidental intro to the organization was what I needed to see. Why, why do I like this organization? Why should I be involved? And so the advice I give to folks is, it doesn't start out with board involvement. It starts out with some sort of volunteer involvement. So pick an opportunity to go spend a few hours or spend a day or whatever it is to see what that organization does, help help the organization and see if it resonates for you. And then you can figure out if you believe in the cause, believe figure out what role you can play. And that may evolve into a board role at some point that I know we'll get to talking about, but I don't think it usually starts with a board role, at least not early in your career. It starts with how do I get connected to an organization that I really believe in and have a passion for? And you're always going to be more motivated to do the right thing and do the best work you can if you have that underlying passion for the organization. Oh, that mission is so important. And so make sure to those who are listening that you, you subscribe to the mission of that organization. So you've been involved with United Way, it sounds like, for quite some time. And I know you've been on the board for United Way Suncoast for about 18 years, if I read that correctly. Uh, either correct me and or how did that evolve to you became a, a board member? Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and you know, I'd, I'll probably give you a little bit of my background on, on how it happened and, and maybe some advice on how I might have thought differently um, if, I, if I had these years of experience to look back on. Um, because I went, in, I went into United Way and, and just started looking for places to volunteer. I had no specific motivation for achieving a board seat eventually. It was just a matter of how do I get involved in help? And so that took lots of different, um, different faces over the course of time. And eventually they approached me and said, hey, you seem to have a real passion for what we're doing. We know you're a business leader. We'd love to get you more involved at a higher level in the organization. And so it was almost, again, a, a an accidental natural progression of things where I didn't set out to be a board member. I set out to help the organization and the organization said, okay, we can see where these skills are gonna translate well into, into our board role. And I think for larger organizations, more mature organizations, they hopefully have a, a pretty structured method of, of corporate recruiting and or, or board recruiting and governance that says, let's look for the people that we want to bring onto the board and, br and bring them in. And that worked for me. Smaller organizations may not have that same maturity. And so in a smaller, less mature organization, you may need to say, okay, here's how I think my skills can best serve the organization. And if that's the board role, let me start taking steps and having conversations about how I get to that role, um, which has happened for me at other organizations that I've been involved with where I said, Here's what I think I can bring to the table. And the organization said, yeah, that's great. That's going to be accomplished through a board seat. Um, 
So I, I think sometimes it happens as a natural evolution and sometimes you can make it happen depending on the, the nature of the organization and your kind of level of, of capabilities, right? When I started volunteering with, with United Way, I don't think I would have been a great board member yet. It just, I wasn't ready for that, right? From a business acumen perspective and a growth perspective, I think I needed time to both grow my business skills and get my, grow my knowledge of the organization. And, and so over time you joined, you were asked by United Way to join that board and now you, you're the board chair. Would you talk a little bit about that progression and maybe some insight and some advice for others that are current board members and may aspire to be the board chair? Yeah, you know, I think you have to look at what what your skill set is and how you want to uh, contribute to the organization, right? And I look at, at my skill sets and say, okay, I've I've been a consultant my whole career, so I'm a bit of a generalist. I have a broad set of, of knowledge, but I'm not necessarily, you know, a mile deep in any one particular um, set of skills. And so the board the board uh, chair role for me makes a lot of sense, right? I've led my own companies and 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 kind of had that broad. Uh, approach to how you manage a team. And I looked at that and said, I think I can play a role as a board chair and help us truly leverage the skills of the rest of the board, much in the way that I would running a, a for-profit organization, figuring out how you leverage the skills of your management team. And so that was for me kind of the, the personal, here's how I think I can really have an impact in this board in a greater way than just, you know, being in, in, in the board meetings. Um, and that took multiple steps to get there as well. So before I was the board chair, I chaired a couple of committees of the board. I chaired some task force, task forces and things that let me, I think, demonstrate to the organization my ability to lead. Um, it also got me deeper into the, or, into the organization and the knowledge. And so those things kind of came together in, in a nice way that, that left me in a position to, I think, make a huge impact in, in, the, in the organization. And my role at United Way is probably a little bit unique in that this is my second term as a board chair separated by 10 years in the middle um, because the organization has grown so much. So my first first uh, term as board chair, we were going through a, a merger with uh, with another local United Way to the south of us here in Tampa Bay. And and uh, and we pulled that off and, and created, I think, great um, uplift and, and wins for the organization. And so that was a, a time again where I think where my skills, having gone through mergers and acquisitions on the for-profit side, led into okay, how do we delicately walk down this path and get everybody aligned in a way that's going to be successful? Because it's not, you know, it's, it, it can't be treated as an acquisition in, in the for-profit world or the non-for-profit world. It's got to be a, a, a great kind of blending of, of the minds and coming together. And, and we, I think, pulled that off to great success um, here in the Suncoast region. So, so you, you touched on something I think is fascinating, and I want to dive into a little bit your experience on the for-profit and the non-profit side. So particularly now, you just talked about mergers and acquisitions. What, what sticks out to you as the biggest difference between organizations coming together on the for-profit side and the non-profit side? Uh, you know, probably the biggest difference is, is all the financial impact of a for-profit, uh, you know, merger or acquisition versus a non-profit. The, the nice thing about non-profits is, if you're doing it right, if everybody has the same mission mindedness to what you're doing, right? So we're already aligned on what we're trying to achieve and nobody's trying to get rich off of a merger and acquisition in the not-for-profit world. So it takes all that noise out of it and you can really just focus on the mission and why this is gonna be better for everybody without having to worry about shareholders that that you know that, that have to get their their payday out of the out of the deal. So there's still, you know, there's people involved. So the, the most difficult part of, of any of these things that you bring up two business together is getting the people aligned and, and, and working through the culture issues, but taking away all the financial noise that comes with things 
I think simplifies it. And obviously there's some level of financial noise because you still have foundations and and and, uh, and and dollars that have to be treated according to either donor wishes or the organization's wishes. So there's still financial implications to be worked through, but I just found it to be um, a, a more aligned conversation with folks that are mission-minded. And um, I think if you can make sure that the people in the room all have that mentality, the pro conversation gets way easier. If you've got somebody who's making a lot of noise about protecting their parochial interests or being a little territorial, it can be a challenge which is not un unlike a for-profit uh, merger, um, but I think that's where some of that experience came in and helped me work through some of those people issues that were part of the part of the process looking at away. Well, that makes sense. And again, it's all about the mission. And if you can be unified in the mission, it sure does make things uh, not simple, maybe easier. And I use right. that term because I know it's not easy. Uh, I've, I've been around been around too long to to know that. So your role as chair now, and your your second time as chair, and the organization has really grown dramatically. How did you approach it? So you get you get voted in. You're now chair. Educate us on how you approached that role. Your relationship with the CEO. You've got an absolutely dynamic CEO and Jessica up there. How do you how do you you know approach the job? Yeah, I, you know I think I approach this job like I have every leadership role I've had. Um, which for me is coming from a position of being a servant leader. So that's a, a big philosophy that's important to me and how you lead. And I think it's critically important in this world as well. And you talk about Jessica as our CEO, you know, we're, we're blessed to have a, a really top-notch CEO, you know, with Suncoast, and, and she's a, a wonderful person to work with. And so I, I always look at it as we're work, I'm working with her. We're working together. It's a partnership. And while technically, yes, the CEO reports to the board and the board chair, I don't ever look at it that way. And frankly, I never looked at that that way in the for-profit world either. I always looked at it as a working with and, and a servant leadership mentality. So I think that applies here as well. And so, you know, Jessica is, is also a great collaborator. So I think it helps when you have a CEO and a board chair that have a similar mindset that we need to work together to achieve goals. And, and so we have a great collaborative working relationship, um, which really works well. And I found that with other nonprofits as well. If, if you have a good relationship with the CEO, you're able to get a lot of things done because you're not butting heads. If you're trying to be this kind of command and control board chair, you're just not going to get as much done because you're going to be butting heads with the CEO. You're probably going to butt heads with with the other um, board, board members as well because you've got a lot of type A high-powered people typically on a board. And so I look at my role as one of a facilitator to make sure that we're getting the most out of the board that we can possibly get and then I'm working with Jessica to help her to get the most out of her team that she can get. And, you know, I try to try to stay in my lane as a board chair and not dip too deep into the operational side of things. But there are times when she may ask me to, to weigh in and I'm happy to do that, knowing that it's ultimately her organization to run. Um, but I'll, I'll, you know, jump in wherever she can use some input. But I think it's not that unlike running a, a for-profit organization in terms of the people skills and the leadership skills that you need. Obviously the tasks that you're doing and, and the way that, the organization is achieving its goals is very different, but you know people are people, and, and when you're trying to lead folks, it's a lot of the same tenets that that uh, that come into play. Well, several things you said there, Brian, I think are noteworthy for the audience: the servant leader approach and the facilitated leadership approach with the board. Command and control really doesn't, if it ever worked, and I guess maybe it did in in some era. Certainly not not today. And so I think that's very important for anybody out there who's a board chair or aspiring to be a board chair. You, you don't come in and command and control. You you, you, you kind of heard, you facilitate, and you extricate the, the best out of everybody. Um, so when you, when you look at 
interactions with board members? You know, obviously you've got a structure of regular meetings, I, I assume. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think people want to know how, how often do you interact with board members? Um, how many meetings do you have? How do you structure your meetings? Can you just talk about the operational aspect of being a board chair? Sure. And I think it's different depending on the organization. So um, I've, you know, I've had organizations where we meet every month as a board, um, some that meet um, every other month, and I've, I've had some that meet quarterly. So it just depends on the nature of the board as to how frequent the formal meetings are. But it, as, as you know, Michael, from all the work that you've done, a lot of the work happens outside the boardroom anyway. It happens in committee work and task forces that are that are part of the, of the kind of overall uh, volunteer structure. And so interactions with other board members typically happen in those committees as well. Um, but outside of the structured meetings, which again can take a lot of different frequency on, I'm a big fan of making sure you make some personal connection with your fellow board members. So, you know, as, as new board members come on, I'll make a point of making a phone call and reaching out to them and making sure that we have some connection. Um, if I already know the board members from being part of the board along the way, that's great and, and, and that works well. But I think you've got to connect with folks and build good working relationships so that you know you can call on each other, right? And and I've had certainly times in my past as a board member where the board chair would call me and say, hey, Brian, I think we can use your help to get this particular item moving forward or get this task done. And I'm happy to have those phone calls. And I think that delivered a message for me as the board chair now that I should be comfortable doing that because I, I didn't ever take that as an affront that why would you call me? I'm busy. I don't have time for this. I was always happy they called me. And I found that in my role as board chair as well. When I call a fellow board member, not once have I had somebody say, why are you bothering me? They're always like, hey, what can I do to help, right? And I think that's the nature of, of having a good, solid, high-functioning nonprofit board is folks really want to help. And so they're sometimes just waiting to be asked. Um, and as long as that ask lines up with both their, you know, their capabilities and their skill set, as, as well as having not too big of an ask of their time, I think it works well. So um, th those are more informal, but I think I'd, my, my advice to folks would be make sure you've got connections to your fellow board members so that you're not in a room trying to facilitate a meeting full of a bunch of strangers. Yeah, and, that's, and you have to be intentional about it. So I appreciate you saying that. Those relationships are so critically important, but it takes intentionality from the board chair to reach out because it's unlikely everybody else is going to reach out to the board chair. This really is that leadership role uh, that, that people have to, uh, to leverage uh, while they're going through the through the monthly process, if you will. So, so oftentimes we hear of board members getting too involved with staff, uh, with operations. How do you, how do you ensure a comfort level with the organization, with the staff, knowing that you're working primarily through the CEO? Yeah. So I, I think in most situations, the other staff folks will be brought into board meetings, at least on occasion. So you get a chance to have interactions with them. And I think that's a, a best practice for the CEO not to be the sole point of, of connection. So I, I like having direct access between some of the staff, the other staff beyond the CEO and the board. I've seen boards operate where the only point of connection or information between the board and the organization was the CEO. Um, and that's dangerous because this, if the CEO isn't giving a, a, an objective viewpoint of the world, the board is going to make bad decisions um, and, and it's not taking probably not taking their fiscal and fiduciary responsibilities as, as, as strongly as they should. So I think those connection points are important. And, and I've seen it run a, a, a kind of a, a broad spectrum as well, depending on the maturity of the organization. So in some smaller, less mature nonprofits, the board may get more involved with the with the uh, the rest of the, the staff and the team at the, the organization because they need more help. At a larger, more mature organization like United Way, 
that really doesn't happen because there's such a strong team in place. Those folks are high functioning professionals doing their job. And so I've, you know, as a board chair, I have great relationships with, with at least the senior leaders of the organization and, and try to make sure that I'm visible to the rest of the organization as well. And to me, I think that just helps there to, to not be a tension between the staff and the board, right? There's, there's comfort that, okay, these are friendly folks. We're all working together. We're all rolling in the same direction. And so I think that's an important piece. And it, it's, for me at least, it's pretty easy to stay out of the operations because um, whether it's in my nonprofit or my for-profit board roles, my job isn't to jump into the operations of, of the business. It's more strategic. And so that that's a, a consistency that's easy for me to kind of keep in my lane and, and make sure I don't dig too deep. Unless the CEO says, hey, I could re- really use your help. Great, we'll jump in where we can. So I, I was recently in, in a, uh, made a statement that if you want to be a successful board chair, just run a good meeting, run a tight meeting. Yeah. And, uh, you know, of course, got a laugh out of it. But how do you when you approach board meetings, how do you ensure how do you create a productive meeting? It's it's funny to kind of make a joke of it, because while running a good meeting isn't going to make you a successful board chair, running horrible meetings will definitely make you an unsuccessful board chair. So you, you've got to. You know, you, nobody wants to come in for an hour and a half scheduled meeting and have it run three hours. That's not going to work for a bunch of busy people. So, um, again, I, I think it's like running on any other meeting. It, it's a role of, of playing the facilitator. Um, and so as the board chair, I tend to err on the side of being more of a facilitator and less of a participant and trying to draw the board members in as the participants. Um, anybody that's tried to participate and facilitate the same meeting understands the challenges of how you can effectively do either of those. And, and it's difficult to do both of them well. So I'll pick my points and, and, and have some, some comments where I need to, but more often than, than not, I've been having conversations offline with the CEO and other folks. And my job in the board meeting is to facilitate, make sure people get their voices heard, um, draw people out that I know have something to say that maybe haven't gotten the chance to say it yet, but then also figure out when it's time to stop discussing and start deciding and get to actions. And so, I think that's part of the the the, you know, the secret sauce, if you will, of, of running a meeting like that is to make sure you're inclusive and everybody has their voice heard, but also manage an effective and efficient meeting so that you can hopefully end on time, or if you're not gonna end on time, figure out how to adjust the schedule and get to the things that you need to get to um, and, and be respectful of, of, of people's time. So I, I think it is an important skill to have to be successful as a board chair to run to, to run an efficient meeting. It's not the only skill, but it's an important one. A pearl of wisdom, end your meetings on time. Or if you're not going to ask for permission to extend that meeting time, but don't do that too frequently, right? <laughs> and, and equally importantly, start them on time, right? So, <laughs> oh, very my, good. My, my other pearl of wisdom is don't punish all the people that were on time by starting the meeting late when they're already sitting there ready to go. So, You know, just because it's a not-for-profit doesn't mean you loosen up standards of running a meeting, starting on time, ending on time, respecting people's time. So that's very, very good advice. Now, in that, you shared a little bit about you prep with the CEO and maybe other staff. Could you talk a little bit about how you all prep for board meetings? Yeah, so I, I have kind of recurring standing meetings with the CEO on all, all the boards that I'm chairing, um, and that frequency can differ, right? It, it might be weekly, it might be bi-weekly, it might be monthly, just depends on the organization. But I, I would say you always want to have that kind of structured um, regi- regimen with the CEO so that you know you're going to have time together. Both the CEO probably needs some of your time, you need to stay connected, and it helps you all plan and, 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 and make the whole um, the whole uh, running of the organization more, more smooth. So... Um, what we do is, you know, we'll meet on a 
with Jessica and I as an example, we meet every other week. Um, and, and we're talking through what's on her list, what's on my list, making sure that we're all aligned. And then as the board meetings start to approach, we start to lay out draft board agendas and, and work on what she thinks is, is important to have on the agenda, what things I think might be important to have on the agenda and make sure we all come together. So we're working together to build a meaningful agenda, make sure that we've got enough time. And sometimes we'll say, hey, these are all important, but there's no way it's gonna fit in the allotted time. So let's figure out which things are less time sensitive. We'll kick those down to the next board meeting um, and make sure we, we make a note of that so we don't lose track of it. But it gives us kind of a predefined structure so we don't have to try to remember, hey, there's a board meeting coming up at this point. We got to start backing up at X number of weeks to plan for it. It's kind of built into a process that we have. Um, Jessica is really good at that because the organization's pretty mature. She's a, a, a mature um, executive. She's led uh, plenty of, of teams before. I know some other smaller nonprofits I've been part of, it required a little bit more of my effort to make sure that we had that structure built to it so that a board meeting doesn't sneak up on us and all of a sudden you're a week ahead of the board meeting and you haven't, not only have you not nailed down your agenda, but you don't haven't even thought about getting materials together to get to the board in advance um, and make sure they're prepared for it. And, you know, we've got a good regimen in United Way Suncoast where the board gets a, a, a packet of information from the consent agenda well in advance and they're ready to go. And I've seen other organizations where sometimes the board's seeing things for the first time in the board meeting, and it just makes for um, a lot less discussion and meaningful strategy input from the board when all you're doing is listening to presentations that you could have reviewed outside the boardroom ahead of time. So valuable advice. You said something in there that I, I want to preach from the mountaintop, and that's a consent agenda. The, and the value of the consent agenda. And I've been with organizations, they've been so reluctant to do that. Can you just talk about the benefits of that for, for a minute, Brian? Yeah, the consent agenda is really a game changer. It, it really gets you out of board meetings being all about reporting and gets you to be able to shift the board meetings being all about discussion and planning and, and, and strategic conversations. So, you know, for, for those of, of, of the, those folks listening that haven't heard of a consent agenda before, it basically is a, a means of taking, you know, financial information, reports from different parts of the organization that don't need as much discussion, but need to be shared with the board, either because of the fiduciary responsibility of the board or just because you want to keep the board informed. But if it doesn't require a lot of conversation, put out all of that presentation and background material into the into consent agenda, send it out in advance, and everybody has a chance to review it before they get in the meeting. And then instead of having to go through all of that information, it's kind of a one fell swoop. We're going to, you know, ask everybody, if, is there anything on the consent agenda that they want to pull out for discussion? So you're not burying anything. Everybody has a chance if they want to discuss it. And if not, then it's one motion, one second, one vote, and we move on from the consent agenda. And instead of spending, you know, an hour of time reviewing the, the you know, regular financial reports, whatever they are, we can now move into the, the strategic conversations that you want your board to be having. And I would tell you, it's not only better for the organization, but it's so much better for your board members who don't feel like they're wasting their time sitting in a room being read to when they can read it in advance and instead come in and, and be part of a meaningful conversation. So I, I just see our board so much more engaged using that consent agenda approach. We get so much more value from the board than we would get otherwise. And again, I think you've got to have a CEO and a, and a, and a team that wants that, right? They're, they're the, the folks that are resisting a consent agenda, I, I'm not really sure why they would be doing it, um, other than they're not prepared maybe for that level of strategic conversation with their board. But man, when you do it, it's a game changer. It, it really gets the board engaged. You attract a better caliber of board members and retain a better caliber of board members because of your ability to utilize their skills and their time more effectively. 
I don't think you can underestimate the power of what you just said, Brian, and the importance of running an effective meeting to attract good board members. Nothing will turn off board members quicker than poorly run meetings, not getting the information ahead of time, not being efficient, because they're there to contribute. They want to contribute and participate and contribute their brains, their, their, you know, their, um, their intellect. And if they're talking about and listening to menial tasks, it's just very, uh, it turns them off. So I think you're exactly right. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I, you know, I've been on some boards where, where I sat in a room and, and just, you know, did not want to be there any longer because of all those reasons. And, and it, it caused me to not, you know, to not be committed to the board and to, to get off the board instead of staying on it. And you can keep folks connected and, and, uh, and really involved. They'll want to be, and they're going to talk to other folks. So you're going to attract other qualified board members as a result of people seeing this is an organization that really makes great use of, of my valuable time. So if, if somebody wants to be a board chair, what soft skills, hard skills, what, what do you think makes an effective board chair? And so this is a lesson for somebody out there that may be thinking about, yeah, someday I'd like to be a board chair. Yeah, I, I think the soft skills are the most important part of it for sure. I, I think it's, it's the, it, as a leader at that level in an organization, it's not about running the operations of the business. It's not about managing people directly. It really is about facilitating those meetings. I think you've got to have a high EQ, um, more importantly than an IQ, right? So understanding that, that the, the emotional side of folks and, and, and you got a bunch of busy people in a room and how do you keep them engaged, keep them connected, make them feel valued. I think you've got to be able to, to, to execute on the people side of things, probably more importantly than anything else. Um, but obviously the hard skills of being able, being able to facilitate a meeting effectively and, and, and maintain the structure and, and manage to an agenda and a time frame. those are all important things. But I, I would say the, the soft skills and the people skills are, are more important as a, a nonprofit board leader um, because you're going to get the most value out of drawing all those other people in. It's not all about your capability. It's about the capability collectively of the board. That, that's good. I, I, and I appreciate you saying that. And so a question I, I've I've often thought and wondered, and, and this is a little bit, uh, I'm taking a little bit of a detour, but you're, you've obviously been on board, nonprofit boards. You've also been on for-profit boards, and you sit on a couple now. What is the difference as a board member? You know, I, I think the... <laughs> sometimes the purpose of the organization makes the all the interactions different right so a, a for-profit company is obviously trying to drive shareholder value and bottom line profits and serve its customers and so there's a little bit of a different bent to that in terms of the purpose of what you're doing but there's also a lot of similarity to me so again back to the servant leadership perspective um, the biggest thing i can do is is ask the question of a ceo when i'm on their board you know, what can I do to help? How do I help you achieve what you're trying to achieve? And that doesn't really change between for-profit and not-for-profit. So I would argue that there there are a lot of similarities to, to doing them for sure. Um, I, th I think the high pressure nature of a for-profit board, if you're in a, if you're in a, a uh, public company that's got to deliver quarterly, quarterly results, that's a very different um, way, way you've got to look at things, even on a private company. You know, you probably still want to deliver monthly and quarterly results for the shareholders, and so I think you've, you've got a different lens that you're looking at things through. But it depends on how big the company is. So, like our conversation before about the, the maturity of the nonprofit, I think it greatly depends on the maturity of the for-profit. And so, most of my involvement has been smaller. 
um, early stage tech companies where I'm on the board. So I've not sat in the big public company boardroom running, you know, what you would have seen on on a TV show or a movie somewhere. So my role with the the smaller non or the smaller for profits that I work with is very much a coaching and mentoring role with the CEO as well. And so it's really not that different, um, other than because of my background and the nature of the companies I'm working with, I may get a little more operational with those CEOs. Um, but again, I'm letting them drive that, right? So if I see somewhere I can help, I'll I'll w- walk down that path a little bit, but I'm looking for them to guide me. And the, the biggest thing I look at on both sides that you can do that drives value is just be available, right? Make sure that you're available for that CEO when they need you, right? So it's, I would I would say that the for-profit boards that I'm working on are probably less structured in my time. We have structure, but it's more frequent for my phone to ring at any point during the day with the CEO going, hey, I got I want to weigh in on, on something here. Give me your feedback, give me your input. Um, and that, that happens in the nonprofit world as well, but not as frequently. So I think the, uh, the, the, the pace of your involvement and the, the, the frequency of times you're gonna get called is likely higher in, in a small for-profit organization because they're nimble, especially in tech organizations, the world is changing quickly. Um, but frankly, um, that nimbleness is, is important on both sides because in today's world, for any nonprofit, you've got to be able to, to change. We all know in, the, in recent years, whether it's an unexpected pandemic that comes along, or as we know here in uh, in Florida, uh, a hurricane that uh, you're not sure exactly where it's going to impact, you've got to be able to pivot quickly and make sure you respond. And those are, again, times where I want to make sure I'm available to the CEO um, so that I can help them with, a, with that decision-making. I can help them get to the board if we need to get to the board, whatever the case is. So. I find there's a lot more similarities than there are dissimilarities. And, and frankly, bringing the business acumen and the business side of how you would run a board to the nonprofit world, I think is helpful, right? We've, we've got, in some cases, great leaders in nonprofits, but bringing that structure to the board and making sure that, that you're as, as much business-oriented as you are in a for-profit world, I think helps run a better board. Well, those skills, it sounds like those skills are certainly transferable, and uh, I think that's noteworthy. So I've made a statement on this following question I'm going to ask you, and I'm curious what your answer is, because you've seen both for-profit and non-profit. Is it easier to run a for-profit or a non-profit? From from a board perspective? From a board, and then I'll I'll even ask you from a CEO perspective. Yeah, um, from a board perspective, you know, is it easier or harder? That's probably a complicated question because I wouldn't, I don't think it's a one word answer. I think the challenges are different. Um, and so, you know, the, the boards I'm on in the for-profit world are pretty small boards and we're able to get together pretty easily. So even if we need to get the board together, it's simpler. Nonprofit boards tend to be bigger groups. Um, and, and so getting them together, if you need that board in a timely manner to make decisions um, can be tricky. Um, so I think you put some different things in place like executive committees and, and things of that sort where you can get a smaller subset of the board together that's been authorized to do things when you need to more quickly. Um, so I would say um, it's more probably more stressful on, an, on a for-profit board for a variety of reasons, uh, but there are different challenges in the nonprofit board because you've got a bunch of people that are very busy uh, at their day jobs, and so getting their attention isn't always the easiest thing. So. I don't know the one's easier than the other, but the challenges are definitely different. And what do you think about being a CEO? Easier to be a CEO of a for-profit or non-profit? Um, I'll probably make somebody angry no matter what answer I give here. But um, I, again, I think the, the, the stresses are different. Um, I think 
that depending on the nature of the of the nonprofit, um, you may have a much harder time if it's a smaller nonprofit because you have trouble attracting the quality of, of team. Um, when I look at, at running a, a nonprofit like United Way, it's a it's a relatively big organization, um, but because of that, we're able to attract really top notch talent. So you don't have the same struggles there as a CEO. You would have it a smaller organization where you can't attract that kind of talent, and so. The ability to put a team together can be a real challenge for a small for a small nonprofit with a small budget, um, but we have you know re through reputation and size the ability at United Way to put a strong strong team together, and so while the challenges are different, I think Jessica would tell you um, it's 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 hard because the work is hard, but it's not hard because we can't put a team together right, and so um, ev everybody's got stresses, but I I think the stresses are different. Um, and it depends on how much you take them to heart, right? If you're a good CEO of a nonprofit, you're taking the stresses to heart because what you do affects people every single day. Um, and that may be more stressful to, to a good nonprofit CEO than the bottom line stresses of, I've got to put up profits for a for-profit CEO. So again, different stresses, but I, I think both, both um, nonprofit and for-profit um, CEOs have similar pain points that they have to deal with just for different reasons. So. I don't think anyone's harder or easier than the other on the surface. Depends on the nature of the organization and the scale of the organization that you're running. Actually, that's a very thoughtful and good answer, and I appreciate you sharing because it broadened my perspective on things. So, so thank you for that. So, we, we've probably got people listening. This and this is the last question, Brian. People listening that are thinking about being a, a board chair for a nonprofit, would would you encourage them to do it? Would you caution them against it? What advice would you give them? Yeah, I mean, I'd absolutely encourage folks to do it. For the right reasons, right? So, don't don't go become a board chair because you think you need to put something in your resume and that's going to look good for for whatever reason, right? That's great, right? Th th that's not, no no problem having that on your resume and, and thinking that's a good thing, but it's the wrong reason, um, and it's the wrong reason to get on the board at all um, or to volunteer at all, right? So sometimes maybe that's what gets you in the door, and that's great, but you've got to be doing it for the right reasons. So if you have a passion for the organization that you're working with and you want to have the most impact you can have at a broad level, the board chair is a great way to do that because it's a broad impact. Now, I would tell you, don't do only that. So as the board chair, I don't just go, well, that's my role. I also want to go get my hands dirty and jump into individual projects and work at a, a lower level. Um, but again, it gets back to having a passion for the mission of the organization. And so if you believe that's the way you can serve the organization and, and drive value, I think you should absolutely do it. It's, it's something that's needed. Um, and, and good organizations and good CEOs need good board leadership um, to be effective at what they do. So I'd encourage anyone to do it, but again, for the right reasons. Um, and earlier in your career, you know, there's, there's this thought, well, I need to build my resume, so let me get involved. And that's great, do that, because you should. Um, and, and I don't have any problem with people getting good benefits out of playing this role, right? So certainly early in my career, being on boards like the United Way was a great way to get introed and connected to other CEOs of other corporations around the community. And so that's good for me in my business, but it wasn't the reason I did it. It was a, it was a side benefit to doing it for the right reasons. Uh, but I, I think anybody who, um, who wants to be successful in life, I'd encourage them to find a way to get involved as a volunteer at some level. And if that rises to volunteering as the board chair and you've got a passion for that, great, go do it. Um, it's, it's a great way to have an impact um, and, and on a lot of people. Wise words from a servant leader. Brian Deming, board chair for United Way Suncoast. Brian, thank you for sharing your wisdom and your expertise with us today. Much appreciated. Thank you, Michael. I really enjoyed our time together. Appreciate you having me on.
Well, thank you to Brian Deming for that interview podcast, Reed. This was really something spectacular. And so here we are with recapping with Reed and Reed's insight as a young person on the interview we just had. So, Reed, we heard from Brian Deming. What is noteworthy from your perspective? So the first thing that's noteworthy from my perspective was he looks at his role as board chair in more of a facilitator perspective as opposed to being the one or maybe participating as opposed to participating in meetings. He he wants to facilitate the meetings and he wants to get the most out of his board members and he wants to help the CEO get the most out of their staff. And I think that that is a great role as a board chair and as any leader, I guess, but especially as a board chair, be that facilitator, especially at the meetings. Well, and that's a nugget that uh, I advise board chairs is don't speak. You really should not speak much other than to facilitate. Do not give your opinion or be the last one to speak because you will bias the conversation. So Brian said that very eloquently. What else, Reed? What else resonates with you from the, the podcast? Um, I'm going to stick on the idea of board meetings here. And when he was talking about how to run a board meeting and some of his best practices, be on time. Don't go over the scheduled time. Start the meeting on time. Don't punish the people that showed up on time by making them wait. Um, be a good facilitator again and less of a participant. And then know when it's time to stop discussing and to start deciding. Yeah, he, he said that very beautifully. And I can't elaborate any more to that, but he's exactly right. So that, mm-hmm. that, that's gold. If you want to be an effective board chair, we joked about do exactly what Reed just said and what Brian mm-hmm. said previously. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But lastly, Reed, a number three thing. Benefits of a consent agenda. Get the consent agenda out to your board members beforehand so the meetings, the board meetings can be more about strategy and planning and less about presenting information to your board members. This will help remove all of those this meeting could have been an email thoughts we hate being in meetings that could have been an email and quite literally the consent agenda is probably going to be emailed to you and you don't want to spend the whole meeting doing it so use a consent agenda make it effective too good you're absolutely right if anybody out there is not using a consent agenda start next meeting it is an absolute game changer like brian said well that that was reed's three thoughts recapping with reed much appreciated love this segment because it's a lot of fun to get your perspective reed and i want to thank everybody for listening and we will see you or we'll we'll 501 see you next week